This episode brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This is At The Turn. It's time for discussion and interviews about the world of golf you won't hear anywhere else. Here are your hosts, Nick Heidelberger and Joe Simons. Happy New Year to everyone out there and welcome into the first edition of At The Turn for 2021. Nick, we turn the calendar. A a new... Joe! No? No! What's wrong? I'm pulling it up right now. We we had... we. Oh, it was December 30th. Yeah. Right. I thought it was the second one. Well, the last one... The last one you welcomed people with Happy New Year too, so you really threw me off my game. I, I guess I probably did. Yeah, it's all good. Hey, Happy New Year all month of January. It's all good. I'm just it's excited like, for things to get too. going. Yeah. Exactly right. So, big episode today. The Tiger documentary is out based on the 2018 book Tiger Woods. That will be primarily our focus today. Also, want to touch on the Hawaii swing. Always fun to watch the PGA Tour when it goes back to Hawaii. That's where the fellows were the last few weeks. But Nick, the Tiger Woods documentary. What are your initial thoughts? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna back up just a okay. little bit because the documentary has gotten a lot of criticism, and I I have encapsulated a small piece of that. So this is from I almost don't want to give this person credit, but I'm going to. Mike Freeman from USA Today, reputable news organization. When the National Enquirer is one of the stars of a documentary, you know what's going to follow is absolute trash. The second and final part of HBO's documentary Tiger aired on Sunday, and it's dramatically different than the first. The initial one was deep, thoughtful, and fearlessly examined the issue of race in Wood's life. The second one was none of those things. If you're going to give it give part to a title, it would be ew. With like 17 W's. All right. I... Do, do you agree or disagree with this criticism of the documentary? Well, the documentary is based on the book, and the book is basically following the documentary from the big themes, right? The first part of the book, as was the documentary, was Tiger's life growing up, some of the racial struggles that he had being a black man in a predominantly white game. The second half of the book focuses on Tiger Woods' personal struggles the crux of it being the personal struggles and the philandering and the drug use kind of all stem from his childhood and his upbringing. So you can't really have one without the other. I understand that if someone who didn't read this book, which sounds like Mike Freeman of USA Today, because if he was caught off guard by the second half of this, brother, crack the jacket, read the book. What What did you think was going to happen? I mean, I have, you, have you not followed? Well, I think... And I could be way off here, but I think there are a lot of people coming out publicly in the media um, kind of slamming this documentary. And I don't have the time or resources to follow the money, but there's been some speculation that there are organizations who are tied contractually to other organizations, to media deals with Tiger and his people. And maybe this is part of part of all that. But I, I don't – all of the, the criticism for it being salacious, I, I don't agree with at all. And – I think that part two was actually very tastefully done, and I thought it told 
a much more interesting story. I mean, the, the first part was not that it wasn't interesting at all, but I thought part two was way more interesting in the fact that he he hits rock bottom. He goes all the way back to the top in 2013. He hits rock bottom again. The chipping yips. They could have a whole documentary on his chipping yips, and I would have watched that. And to the 2017 Masters, where we don't even know if he's ever going to play again. To to winning the Masters and just all the, just that whole arc is is really engaging in the whole DUI. Obviously, I mean, the man has had some high highs and some low lows, and I don't think any of it is to is to criticize him. I think it's just to tell his story. Well, I think upsetting the apple cart now that Tiger Woods has completed the comeback, he's probably viewed very favorably in the public eye by most people. Because his personal struggles were out there so publicly, America loves a redemption story. And when this book came out, the final redemption hadn't happened yet. So I don't think we'd get a lot of these takes if Tiger never played golf again. If Tiger didn't win the Masters, if Tiger didn't get his three victories, the big President's Cup comeback, him being the captain, having all of that occur, if that piece of his career doesn't happen, I don't think we have these people coming out of the woodwork and saying, well, oh. This shouldn't be happening. Like, this documentary is based on a book, and to your point of it being more tasteful, I was filling in Lacey on a lot of the details of the book that were left out of the documentary because while you get the overarching themes of what is contained in the research by the authors of Tiger Woods, the book, some of the more graphic details that are in it, which really crystallize a lot of the... Earl stuff and Tiger stuff, sort of the depths of what Earl was doing. Same with Tiger. I mean, there's an end. The one that sticks out in my mind for both of them is, you know, Earl's on his deathbed and there's porn playing in the background and sex toys everywhere. And also the one where Tiger and they had Mark O'Mara's wife in there, but the O'Mara's were big characters in the book and she was just in there for a few minutes in the documentary. But the one that really sticks out is the family friend that Tiger had when he first moved into that community when he was a young man. She was a kid. And then once she hit college, they had sex in his driveway, like in this community. Like they didn't go into those salacious details that they could have in the book. I thought they kept it kept it pretty high level and pretty chill. But to go back to your original point, I've seen a lot of that too, Nick. People coming out of the woodwork saying this isn't right. I can't believe this is this is you know tabloid journalism at its worst. And I even thought that the guy who was in the documentary talking about people rooting for Tiger to fail. I don't know if you want to get into that now, but I found that to be a pretty unfair criticism because people didn't want Tiger to fail. I don't think that's true. What happened was Tiger was the best athlete in the world. Tiger Woods had a very public meltdown. And I think the apology, and they talk about this in the doc, and I think they did a good job about it. The apology was a huge mistake because it was received in a way that, okay, well, Tiger has put this out there. This is now something we can all talk about, right? He is now fair game. This is a subject that is not taboo. All the late night hosts are talking about it now. It's now safe to do it. If Tiger would have moved on from it, and just said, this is, this is between me and Elon, and left it at that, I think it would have gone away a lot more quickly. No, I, I agree. I, I just was watching, because I heard a lot of these, these um, you know, critiques that came out before I watched part two, and the salacious and the trash, and I'm, and I'm almost 
watching it with that eye, like waiting for like it to become trashy. And and I don't know how you could tell Tiger's story without include. I mean, like if you think it's trashy that they're putting his mistresses on there, that's that's part of Tiger Woods' story. If you think it's trashy that you're playing footage of his DUI, that's part of his story. And they're not doing it to drag him through the mud. They're doing it to to show where he was at, you know, what he fought back from. And just to, and just to tell his story. I mean, you wouldn't be telling his story. You couldn't call this Tiger if you left those details out. Right. I mean, you basically have five acts of Tiger, right? You have him being this sensational phenom as a kid and an amateur, dominating the pro tour as a young man, reworking his swing and his... I don't know, post-prime, I would say, but still in his prime, after 2000. And then you have where it kind of goes off the rails, beginning with the military training and becoming this Las Vegas guy and all of this philandering that he does. And then finally, the redemption and the comeback story. All of those things are a part of the Tiger Woods story, and to gloss over that part of it would be a very insincere story. Mm -hmm. Would, Would you rather get the documentary that we got which was as much about Tiger as possible with the resources that they had. They didn't have Tiger. They didn't have almost any you know, PGA Tour players. But they had all the information in a two-part series. Would you have a last dance style with Jordan? Would you have Tiger himself telling the story, but maybe he gets final cut, but it's eight to ten parts and it tells more of the story? Because the one thing that I was wanting more was – they might gloss over something for 30 seconds where I'm like, oh, this could this could have been a whole hour. You know what I mean? Where like some of the, the US amateur stuff, they 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 make you know, yeah, he won three in a row, but they I think the book really focused on that and in in painted a picture of how important that was at the time. Whereas the documentary just kind of, you know, they dedicated a couple minutes to it. Yeah, I thought about that, Nick. Um something that I was thinking about as I was watching it is who was the target audience for this documentary? Right. Because for golf diehards like us, they leave a lot of stuff out. A lot of the golf stuff they kind of gloss over. But for folks that aren't golf nuts, there's a lot of implied knowledge that you know a lot about the golf things. So I don't really know who this was actually built for. I get that they're probably trying to make it for the broadest audience possible so you have pieces of everything. But even though it was, what, three and a half hours? It still felt very incomplete to me. So I guess to answer your question, I'd probably prefer a Last Dance version to this because it doesn't add anything to the book. So you may as well take another tact and say, we're just going to blow up Tiger Woods. Like, talk to me about the like the one piece that I thought was interesting that I don't know if it was in the book when they were talking about Nike signing him in the media training. I would love to know more about that. Give me like five minutes with a Nike media trainer. What does that look like? How crazy behind the scenes was it from Earl and the media training team? Did Phil Knight and Earl ever get in a fight? They must have. I don't know if anyone was witness to something like that, but those different elements weren't in there. So I don't really know who they made this for. No, I I think they made it for the non-golf audience because when you look at it, how much of the documentary is focused on golf and how much is focused on his life? I mean, it's, it's like... 85% 85% about his life. I mean, they don't even really, like, document the majors. I mean, they show him winning majors, and, you know, you, you see that he's winning them, but it's not like, 
okay, he won this over these over these players, and this is what his lead was, and you know that now he had seven majors. It, it was it was not about that. It was about I mean the 2008 U.S. Open, obviously, but that's to paint a picture of his character more so than to document his golf. I mean that's a guy but- who. To to the 2008 U.S. Open specifically, that was one of the most upset times I was in the documentary because it makes you think that big putt Tiger makes is to win the U.S. Open when, in fact, the big dramatic putt was to tie Rocco Mediate, who was in there as a fun character. But then they had to go 19 holes the next day, and that wasn't even mentioned that Tiger had to play 91 holes, which is 19 more than you would have at a normal tournament on this ACL. The whole narrative was... Tiger made it in the playoff. Is he even going to be able to play? And he did, and he won. So for them not to have those pieces in it, I think is a disservice to the non-golf fans because they're not getting the full picture of the story. Is it necessary to have it? Probably not. But I think you paint a more complete picture. It should be mentioned. Absolutely. Um, I would say that I was overall – disappointed is the wrong word, but – I'm never going to watch this again. I'm not going to, like, recommend it to people. Like, it sounds so trite to say, but I really did enjoy the book more because I learned so much that I didn't know. And perhaps if I had watched the doc without reading the book, I wouldn't feel the same way. Um, The one thing that I thought the documentary did, which a book can't, is actually showing the home videos of Tiger videos, Dina Parr's high school home videos. Oh my God. That was that really, you, you almost would be impossible to show Tiger having a personality in this documentary without those videos, because he's so much more reserved in any interview and anything else he does in the documentary. And those videos show spirit. They show soul. They show personality. Like they show a young man, loving life and and you don't get that vibe from him at any other point not even just in the documentary but anywhere i've never seen that tiger woods and it almost made me sad to see him as like a late teen being so happy you have the kindergarten teacher she was actually good too i thought the high school girlfriend and the kindergarten teacher even though the kindergarten teacher was just in a briefly Two most documentary brought that the book didn't really illustrating her just saying that Earl was a son of a bitch. You know, she doesn't care anymore about what anyone thinks about her. But the high school girlfriend I thought was really good. And the fact that she still had the letter that Tiger wrote to her basically to say, never contact me again. Someone made the point later in the documentary. I can't remember who, but I thought it was a good one. Tiger wasn't just having flings. He wasn't having one night stands. He had like 12 simultaneous relationships. And that's an important distinction because the reason these women wanted to come out was because Tiger broke all of their hearts. It's not like he's going and having a one-night stand with an escort. He was having relationships with these people. And I think you need that and that said to demonstrate how messed up he was from early on in his life from Earl and that assistant pro at the Navy golf course who have the Winnebago and they're taking blondes in there while Tiger is putting and chipping. You have to have all that stuff. Otherwise, the thesis is Tiger's a dirtbag and there's no reason for it. Well, there is a reason for it, and it's this right here. I think that that was something that really struck me too is these women saying, you know, I still love him. I'm always going to love him. He broke my heart. And it's like, 
wait a second. But I think that really kind of speaks to his personality. Like he cannot be himself really ever. So for, for him, I, I think it was more than just an affair of mistresses. I think it was probably an opportunity to actually be himself and to let his guard down. And so he, with a handful of women, he did completely let his guard down and he probably needed that. I mean, I mean, can you imagine never getting that outlet? You know, it, it I'm sure he just needed to completely let his guard down, connect, and, and he connected with these women. And then ultimately, you know, the, the Tiger Woods, you know, image and, and everything that comes along with that, you know, broke it all up. But I think I think that was an important connection to make that he he needed that for himself to, to just make a connection, make a human connection that he probably doesn't get to do at any other time. A big piece, and they didn't mention it, was Tiger's and, – and they do do a good job of talk, talking about Tiger's break with Stevie. I thought that was impactful. But they don't talk about Tiger's break with Fluff, which I think was just as impactful. <clears throat> and what was weird about it is the guy who wrote the article for GQ, Charlie Pierce, is in the documentary. He's giving testimony to the camera, and they don't mention that GQ article, which is the first time Tiger – gotten a little bit of hot water where he basically made an off-color joke and he told the reporter Charlie Pierce for GQ, hey, don't print that. And he did. And that was like a big thing. And the reason he fired Fluff was because Fluff talked to the media too much. And those things are important because they set up who Tiger would be in his whole life in this immediately saying, these people are dead to me. Like the family friend, I think her last name was Loria. The fact that that was someone Tiger would confide in. And then all of a sudden, after the Elon incident, boom, cut out of the life completely. The one element that was a bit last dancey, and I wish they did more of it, was the 2001 Masters where Tiger was paired with Phil. And they're talking about the fact that Phil crushed a tee shot on 13 at Augusta. And Tiger pulls out a three-wood and hits it 30 yards past him. Yeah. And Stevie, like, recounts the conversation. Like, give me more of that. Give me, like, David Duvall giving his perspective now on what Tiger was. Give me Phil Mickelson because their their relationship was so complicated back then. But now it's, like, almost a perfect time to reflect on Tiger's career because it is in its twilight. But a lot of those relationships have softened. Phil and Tiger don't have the same iciness that they did 15, 20 years ago for obvious reasons. They're not competing for every major. But hearing some of that stuff from their perspective now on 20, 25 years ago, I think would be fascinating. Yeah. My, the, the funniest line for me was when he's going to the club with, with Charles Barkley and Michael Jordan. And he's like, ah, I talked to these girls. Like, I don't, I don't know what am I supposed to say to these girls? And he's like, tell them you're Tiger Woods. Yeah, Jordan's like, I tell him I'm Michael Jordan all the time. You know what? It works. You don't need much. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the the bottom line for me is they really had an impossible task with this documentary because there are so many. I mean, this could be a it could be a 20 hour documentary. Who would watch that? You know, it, it, the access to Tiger and his circle is is next to impossible. Um, so with, with what they had, I, I think it's good. I think it's a good snapshot. It, it tells the story. It's, it's everything in one place, which is what you need. Um, so w with what they, with what they had, I, I'm glad it's here. I, I enjoyed watching it. I know. I heard that Tiger was not involved with this. He was asked to give final cut and they wanted him to be involved. And, and he allegedly said no.
But the last interview where it's Tiger Woods, it almost seems like he did participate in this to give like a final stamp like this is okay. Do you know what I'm talking about the very end of the second part? Yes, I do know, but I'm I am pretty sure he did not participate in this whatsoever. I am too, but it's almost and I understand him not wanting to do this when the focus of it is Earl's a dirtbag and Tiger followed in his footsteps. I guess my final thought on this would be the whole idea that people don't want Tiger to succeed, I don't think is true. If you work in the golf or sports or entertainment business and you're talking about Tiger Woods, you know what's really good for business? Tiger Woods winning. When Tiger Woods won the Masters, that was the most downloaded episode we've ever had. And it was that way instantly. Tiger Woods being good is good for everybody. Sure, you're going to get a little bump of, oh, Tiger's messing around on his wife. And that's going to be around for a little bit. But what's sustaining is, is Tiger Woods is great. Tiger shot four under in the first round of the Masters. And it was almost the biggest story because, oh, my God, is Tiger going to defend? If Tiger shoots 67 in April at the first round of the Masters, people are going to lose their money. People want Tiger to win. I think that now we've reached a point with Tiger. The redemption is real, and people actually see a different kind of person. Tiger has learned his lesson. He went through hell to get there. But I legitimately think he's a different person now, don't you? 100%. I mean, I think it's... I think that's one of the things they illustrated in the story. They show his childhood. They show those those home videos. He has this whole period where he's just the Tiger Woods persona. But at the very end, he's he's laughing. He's joking around. And, and Joe, since you gave your final take, this is the perfect transition. The the bit they show with the Kevin Na putt where Kevin Na yes. hits his putt and runs and grabs his ball out of the hole. And then Tiger does the exact same thing in like just laughing and putting his arm around him, walking off the green, and the announcers are, are saying, you would have never seen this from Tiger Woods at any other point in his life. That is so true. Um, and so they kind of tied that childhood back to how he is now, and, and he's kind of let the whole thing go, and he's being a little bit more open. And I leading did, into Kevin, uh, are we yes. done with Tiger Woods? I just need one more thing, because you reminded okay. me of it. Yeah. My, I think my favorite line was from Armin Katayan, who was one of the authors of the book. And they were talking about the 2019 Masters and the fact that all these guys wanted a shot on Tiger on a Sunday. And then it just cuts to Katayan. And he says, the fuck you do. <laughs> and then it shows all these guys dumping it into Ray's Creek on Sunday at the Masters. I thought that was perfect. That was great. The, the one kind of faux pas with that was they're, they're showing Molinari while he's saying this, who in the the last major that had been played before this Masters went toe-to-toe with Tiger. At one point, Tiger had the outright lead, and Molinari passed him and, and won him. that major. So yeah. uh, that was a little bit cringeworthy, but no, the point was made. Um, well, Nick, like you said, smooth segue to the Hawaiian Islands. PGA Tour is back. It's in Hawaii. We have two winners, and Kapalua, Harris English, beat the young Chilean, Joaquin Neiman, and then Kevin Na at Wildlife Country Club just gets past Chris Kirk, who was a really cool story. Did you see what he had to do to keep his card? He had to finish in the top three to retain his PGA Tour, tour status coming into this week, finished second to keep it, and then Joaquin Neiman with a back-to-back runner-up finish, he finished second at Hawaii. So I'll let you take it away. You've been on the Neiman train for two years now. Well, my number one takeaway from the Hawaii swing 
was that Kevin Na has the logo of him grabbing the ball out of the hole as quickly as possible embroidered on the back of his golf shirt. Yeah. That's my the number brand, one baby. What? The brand. What? This has gone too far. It started with the Phil Mickelson jumping with his arms up, but since it's a logo and it's just floating on a t-shirt, you can't tell that it, he's actually airborne, which he really probably was like three inches Fair. off the ground. Anyways, but this this Kevin Na putt grab is is maybe a step too far. I When I saw it, I'm like, that that can't be. That can't be what I think it is. Well, Kevin Na now, Nick, here's here's a stat for you. So this is this is Kevin Na's fifth PGA Tour win and the fourth season in a row that he has won a PGA Tour event, joining only Dustin Johnson and Bryson DeChambeau in that group. Wow. Yeah, not That's too wild. bad. And Harris English won for the first time in many years. Um, good win for him. Look, at the end of the day, the weather's worse for you, so I'm sure this goes double. But, man, how nice is it to just sit back because they re-air it three times a day. Thank you, Golf Channel. And just watch people play golf in Hawaii. Warm winds, big fairways, ocean, surfing. It just makes me happy every year. No, it's great. My, my favorite part about it is being on the East Coast is to go through my whole day, eat dinner, do the dishes. It's 9 o'clock at night, crack open a beer, and you turn on golf, and they're like on the ninth hole. Yeah. You can, you can, you can watch for a couple hours and like – was I really paying that much attention? No, but golf was on, and uh, you know, I, I I didn't really I was I was pulling for Joaquin Neiman, obviously, um, but I wasn't I wasn't like enthralled in it. It was just cool to have live golf going on at nine thirty at night. I completely agree. I had no stake in what anyone was doing, but it was just really enjoyable to watch. Um, before we get to our final piece on the Hawaii swing, Nick. I think it's important that we tell the people, and really, this is this has become our gospel on At The Turn. You got to know your yardages. You got to be dialed in, okay? You have to know how far you're going to the stick. Otherwise, look, we don't have Steve Williams out there. We don't have Fluff Cowan. We're out there by ourselves. You can get dialed in with yardages at precisionpro.com. Use promo code 10, excuse me, turn 10, at checkout, and you can save a pile of money. I mean, I think it's upwards of $10, $20, Nick, is it not? It should be $10. It should be so the, the ten, turn. The, the 10 in turn 10 is representative of the amount of money that you can save. Those are your savings. Turn 10 is the promo code. Use it at checkout, precisionprogolf.com. All right, Nick, there was a little bit of ugliness in Hawaii. Justin Thomas, who was playing well at Kapalua, he missed a putt, and he was caught using a homophobic slur. Pretty much the worst homophobic slur someone could use. He dropped a hard F, and he yelled it at himself. And I watched his apology multiple times after the round. And the phrase that I was really hoping he did not use, that he did, is that he said, this is not me. And brother, what you say after you hit a bad golf shot is who you are. I'm not saying Justin Thomas is this awful monster person, but if you think a homophobic slur never enter, and not to say I'm this great person or whatever, or be sanctimonious about it, but it never enters my mind to say a homophobic slur out loud after hitting a bad shot. I'll drop a hard GD on you. 
I'll do that all day long. Don't get me wrong. I'll use some nasty language out there, but I'm not going to use a homophobic slur. Microphones picked it up. The apology stunk. Justin Thomas just needed to sit back and he said, that was a word that I said I shouldn't have. I have to do some self-reflection as to why I would use a word like that in this scenario. And I have to really reevaluate myself after doing this. But he didn't do that. And he lost one of his biggest sponsors as a result. Ralph Lauren is no longer sponsoring Justin Thomas. So directly affecting his checkbook. I hope that gives him cause to really reflect and say, why would that be the word that I choose to say in a heated moment like that? I think that's the most surprising thing is like you, like that, that word hasn't popped into my head in since I was like in middle school. And I I don't know if that's when people decided, you know, like figured out, Hey, this isn't cool. Or if that's when I gained the maturity to figure out, Hey, this isn't cool. But I can remember being in like eighth grade and hearing one of my friends say that and being like, Hey dude, like just say something different. And and again, it's not, not that I'm perfect, but, since around the time I was 13 years old, like that word hasn't popped into my head. The fact that it came out of his mouth and was on the tip of his tongue really raises some questions about, you know, it's just very surprising. Um, I don't think, you know, I think he will be able to smooth this over. I think he's got that clean image. And, you know, I think when it's all said and done, this will be a blip on the radar, but very surprising that this was, that's the word that was on the tip of his tongue. And, and the first thing I thought of when I when I saw this blowing up on Twitter was like, man, if this seems like something that would have been Patrick Reed, and how would that have that he never would have been able to shake that. Whereas no. Justin Thomas will be able to shake it, but that's not necessarily his public personality. That's true. Like if someone like Bubba or Patrick Reed had said mm-hmm. this, people would have been all over him. But it has kind of gone away pretty quickly, even though he lost a sponsor. And look. Time heals all wounds. It's not like he should pay for this forever. And I'm sure his team is probably telling him to just, like, basically move on and not say anything. I'd love to see someone be proactive and, like, reach out to a gay advocacy group and be like, look, I really messed up. Like, what can I do to help your organization? Like, cut a huge check to GLAD or something. Like, do – and not just because you're supposed to, but because you're actually looking in the mirror and saying, this was really bad. I mean, you're right, Nick. The use of a homophobic slur in, like, middle school, you're right. That's around the age where, like, you hear some people saying it and you're like, well, that's really weird. But for a pro golfer to be saying this, he's in his mid-20s, late-20s. He's around a lot of microphones and cameras all the time. Justin's got to know better. He does. Right. And if it's coming out of his mouth in his late 20s in a tour event, you know, it's probably coming out of his mouth in the Thursday game down at the club with with the boys. Exactly. Exactly right. Well, we don't want to be a dead horse, but it happened and it's important to acknowledge. Um, I have one more thing before we close up shop, Nick. I I have one more. You know, I I think we want to save yours for the last. um, Okay. So I'm going to jump in a tournament yeah. that you're very fond of. AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. Oh. Is is a, a Pro-Am sans amateurs this year. Yeah, um, I don't really have a take on this, but I just wanted to get your reaction. I mean, it sucks. Um, I'm glad they're playing at Pebble Beach, but really most of the fun is watching Bill Murray interact with the crowd. Um, and, you know, that's probably part of it too, the safety between the pros and amateurs I get. Because the pros are in a more structured environment, like who the know, 
who knows what Toby Keith and Larry the Cable Guy have been up to the last <laughs> six months, you know? I don't know if they're following protocols, but yeah. I kind of get it from the safety standpoint. And also, half the fun is the amateurs interacting with the crowd that's actually on site. So if you're not going to have the crowd on site, take some of the amateur fun out of it. Bill Murray can't mess with the crowd. You know, Ray Romano can't do his thing out there. Like, I get it. It's a bummer. Um, I just friggin' spread that vaccine, guys. I We... We got to get back to normal soon. Like, I was doing the Blazers show, and we were showing old highlights of when fans were in the stands. It's so different. <laughs> it's so it's so much better. We got to get back there. Uh, every time I see something on TV or, like, a new episode of whatever, I just instantly, oh, pre-COVID, pre-COVID. Oh, yeah. the, the crowd of people, pre-COVID. And it's just like, I got to stop. I got to – we're on a year now. I know. We got we to gotta figure this out. Um, no, it sucks. I love the tournament. It's a cool golf course. Got out there a few years, few years ago with my dad. I mean, do you, do you have a take on it? Um, no, other than I just kind of have this, like, running joke in my house when, like, Ashley was pregnant and she'd want to drink or she'd like, a, a, a can of Coke. I'd be like, oh, yeah. here's a virgin rum and Coke. And so it's just <laughs> kind of like, oh, the AT&T Pro-Am with no amateurs. I don't know. Yeah, it's just, it's Pro-Am with no am. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So a little background. There is a nice par three course near where I grew up. Uh, 18 hole layout, Sahali, shout out Clackamas, Oregon. And they do fun tournaments, but I've been kind of hesitant because, you know, COVID and it's winter and who cares? I I'm not really playing much anymore. So I didn't really care about them. But I got an email last week and it's called the Birdie Buster Tournament. So what they're doing is they're taking these 18 par three holes, full length holes, like they got some that are 190, some that are 80, everything in between. So they got a nice mix of yardages out there. They're taking the 18-hole par-3 layout, and they are rerouting it and making a regulation nine-hole golf course out of this 18 holes of par-3. And it, it's a two-man scramble, and you do two loops. And they said some of the holes will require driver shots in a mid-iron. And I'm like, oh, my God. I got to sign up for this thing. Gave the course a call this morning. Of course, it is fully booked. Yeah, that's an instant. That that's like concert tickets. I I know. So like, I'm not surprised that it's fully booked. I am first on the wait list, which is oh, you know. Don't get in. You think so? Oh, for sure. Someone's gonna drop out. I just hope they're nice enough to call so, ahead. Someone's of time. gonna get. Someone's gonna get COVID. Well, and I was trying to plead with. <laughs> that's not funny. <laughs> I'm laughing though. I was trying to plead with the kid in the clubhouse. Like, you know, are you guys gonna leave this setup out there? Is, are you going to leave it for the weekend if anyone else wants to try it? Because I'm less interested in playing in a golf tournament. I just want to see what this layout is going to be. Mm -hmm. And then I got to thinking, why don't more courses do this? Rerouting? Like a like if U of I changed some of their holes to like reroute the tournament. You know, like a reroute the course. Like yeah. what if you teed off like on 18T to 16 green and made it like a 240-yard hole? You know what? Weird stuff like that. I love it. I mean, it, it, it's really random that you say this because I just put something on Instagram on the app to turn Instagram like three days ago oh. that said, I'm over par three courses. I want a nine hole short par four course, nothing but 240 to 310 yard holes, have some match play and just, I mean, why not? The way the game is going and the way, you know, to have fun, like how fun would that be just to play nine short par fours? where you can smash driver, maybe there's some risk-reward, you know, put your wedge game to the test, have some match play, have a ball. It sounds incredible. 
Buddy, we know some people at U of I. I mean, this sounds like if we're going to structure an at-the-turn invitational, mm. we do a little rerouting at Windy Hills, huh? Absolutely. I this love it. Be, Absolutely this, love it. This may be a good mission. Like, we stay the day after the Corner Club open, and we get them to set it up, like, on uh, a little Twilight Sunday. We do a quick nine-holer. Yeah, I mean, I know they're putting some forward tees in. I mean, I'm, mm. I'm sure from a lot of those, it's, it's, probably, it's probably in that neighborhood. Andrew, if you're listening, please hit us up. We would love to do this. I love it. First episode of the year, we're already inspired to create. Yeah, so if you don't get into this tournament, which I think you will, I and if so. you do, you need to you need to journal it very detailed, oh. and we'll just have a documentary of this of this whole day. For sure. But either way, at the turn invitational, the Monday after the Corner Club Open, a short par four only. That is the takeaway. This sounds... Romy is already. I, I I can hear our buddy Romy. He's he's, he's already in the garage, drawing he out balls with the driver. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's gonna he's gonna send us his design like later today. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. thank you so much for listening to this first episode of the year of At the Turn. Happy Many New more, Year, everybody! Happy New Year! Many more to come. Uh, a lot of it is predicated on young Gavin Heidelberger, and we understand why he rules the roost these days. Congrats again to you and Ashley, man! It's fabulous news. Um, yeah. Do you have anything else? What's our next episode? You know, I was looking at the PGA Tour schedule, and um, it, it's kind of boring coming up. I mean, you have the uh, Phoenix Waste Management open. Um, I think we might have to dial up a specialty pod. Okay. Yeah. We'll find a topic. We'll, we'll do something. We'll do something interesting. I think, I think it's a specialty pod coming up. I'm Lacey Evans. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time at The Turn.